the government has delayed processing of citizenship cases significantly so much so that they have not processed these cases so that there are at least a couple of hundred thousand if not more applicants who could have become citizens to vote in this election cycle yeah that's what i was gonna say yeah that's huge it's huge and they use the pandemic to slow all of that down but they had slowed it down before the pandemic the pandemic was just an excuse to say this is why and so they are being very strategic in how to slow walk anything when it comes to immigration What's going on, everyone? Welcome to A Pretty Normal Podcast, a show that reimagines what society considers normal. Each week, I interview different guests about the topics that they're most passionate about. And this week, I had the opportunity to speak with Tamina Watson, the inspirational founder of Watson Immigration Law, as well as Widen, a nonprofit organization that trains and mentors lawyers to help detained immigrants. She's also the host of the podcast Tamina Talks Immigration and an author and blogger. Tamina is making a huge impact on protecting immigrants' rights and lives and breeds immigration. In our conversation, she shares why immigration became such a passion for her. Tamina has been on the other side of the legal process and understands the long and complicated process that immigrants have to go through. We also spoke about how immigration has changed and even become more difficult and expensive. It may have slipped under the radar for many Americans. However, not too long ago, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, also known as USIS, was at a high risk of completely grinding to a halt. The agency had announced that without more money from Congress, they would have to furlough 13,400 employees. Tamina breaks down that situation and what ultimately happened. If you would like to connect with Tamina Watson, check out the show notes for all the links to her social media. I will also be including a few blog posts from Tamina that will be very informative and helpful to understanding USIS's fees increases. Make sure to subscribe to our show so you get notified every time a new episode drops, and please leave a review if you enjoy the content. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at A Pretty Normal. And without further ado, my name is Xavier Diaz, and you're now listening to A Pretty Normal Podcast. You're listening to A Pretty Normal Podcast, a show that highlights the fascinating stories and thought-provoking moments that make up our lives. My name's Xavier Diaz, and I want to hear your story. I can tell your passion is immigration and law, so I'm super excited to be speaking with you about that today. I have a lot of questions, um, a lot of things that I've been reading in the news, and I hope that you can give me some more information on that. How are you today? Well, Xavier, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I eat, breathe, sleep immigration law. I can't seem to get away from it, but I wouldn't want to. I really love it. And it's it's an absolute honor to be here, and I throw them at me. I've Get all your questions at me and hopefully I can answer them. First, let's definitely get into why did you, why is this such a passion for you? Like, is there something personal to your story and how you grew up that made you want to go in this route? What is it that makes you so passionate about immigration? Well, the short answer is I see the effect of my work on people's lives. The longer answer is I have always wanted to be a lawyer Mm -hmm. and I grew up watching my father work as a lawyer in immigration but in a different country and there was law in the the family chain my grandparents and my uncles and all of that sort of led to me wanting to be a lawyer that but i didn't really want to be an immigration lawyer i was a lawyer in the uk mm-hmm. where i practiced as a barrister but i was very new when I was in the UK practicing as a barrister, knew a lawyer. And I got introduced to my husband when I was visiting America. And I moved to America and I had to start again. Like, how do I practice law? And moving to the, to the States put me into the immigrant category of going through the process of the application forms and going through the delays and 
the the various obstacles that one faces and eventually getting a green card and eventually becoming a citizen I've sort of gone through the whole um, you know immigration journey and I fell into immigration um, by accident somehow I didn't really want to practice that uh, in my view immigration was all about asylum law very humanitarian very you know um, heart um, warming area but also you know a difficult area you know people come through very difficult circumstances and I didn't want to do that day in day out I wanted to do some of it but I didn't think that would um, be the thing that I want to do all the time but when I moved to this country I wasn't you know it wasn't easy to find a job and when I eventually found a job in hindsight it didn't really take that long um, immigration was the right fit and when I started practicing the very first day I realized it's so much more than what I thought it would be mm-hmm. I can work with the CEOs of companies I can work with a lot of very intelligent bright smart people who are running their own companies I work with musicians and um, people who are you know uh, religious leaders um, I just work with practically everyone the battered woman who is fleeing from a bad uh, marriage for example as well as the asylum seekers so all together it's an area of law where I see the effect of my work in a relatively short time and I'm able to make a huge difference in somebody's life and so altogether it's really something that has made me realize I'm good at and I'm making a difference. So it kind of stemmed from you actually had to go through the process yourself and it's a, a process I feel like more Americans should know how it works because Uh, it's a lot of paperwork and it's money. It's a lot of money and time and just waiting like a lot of it is just waiting and From when you went through it to now you're to you are on the other side of it You help people out who are going through it. How much has changed? Has it become more difficult to go through this process? Is there any category that's become maybe a little bit easier? Maybe a little bit harder because obviously there are different visas. So what have you seen that's changed? That's a really good question and the simple answer is everything has become significantly difficult under this administration. But to give your listeners just a very brief breakdown of how immigration works, there are categories. There's the employment category where you know either you're opening a business or a business is hiring you. Um, There's the family category, you know, this particular president had dubbed it chain migration. Mm-hmm. And, and before that, chain migration was not a word, especially mm-hmm. not a derogatory word, but it's about families staying together. And so under the family category, it's you, a US citizen applying for their spouses, children, uh, siblings, but no other category. Those ch- spouse, children, siblings. Um, and a green card holder can apply for their children and spouses, but not parents or siblings. And so when uh, I want to make sure that your listeners understand that what is put out in the news is not always true. The limits uh, to who you can apply for in a family based is very, very narrow. Yeah. Then there is the humanitarian side of things with uh, people of, are filing for asylum or, you know, they've been battered in um, battered spouses or um, victims of crime or trafficking or refugees. Mm-hmm. And there's, of course, the diversity lottery. And so there, there is these categories and every single category has become very, very difficult. If we take the employment-based categories, the administration basically says, hey, immigrants are taking our jobs. Mm-hmm. And that really is far from the truth. If we look uh, at what's happening in the pandemic, the place that we go to or the one place that we are all allowed to go to is a grocery store. If you think about the grocery store and you look at the apples and the beautiful shiny fruit waiting for you to be you know, put on in your grocery cart, um, those are coming to the grocery store because we have immigrants picking them. We have immigrants throughout the food chain 
that allows us to get the food that we can get while we are in quarantine. Um, you know, people were storing their toilet paper and what have you. It's because there was a, 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 a serious concern that we would have a shortage of things. But luckily, thanks to the immigrants on the ground who are doing invaluable contribution to our society, we are getting our needs, net, needs met. If you think about this particular method of our, our interview, Skype, a lot of people are using Zoom at the moment. If you think about, you know, WhatsApp and other technology that we are using to get through the pandemic because we cannot leave our houses. Our children are using various um, uh, applications. A lot of these are either founded by immigrants or maintained by immigrants. If you think about just a soft, you know, your phone, your, your listener just needs to look at their phone and they'll see that the hardware software network, all of these things are being maintained uh, quite significantly significantly by immigrants. Uh, a large portion of our high-skilled immigrants are working on in the technology field. But then if you think about the pandemic and our health situation, you know, so many people, I don't know how many cases a day are still coming out and people are, you know, in hospital where the hospitals are having difficulties, you know, um, taking people in and essentially looking after everybody. If you think about the doctors, the nurses, the other staff, a large portion of them are immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about what's happening at the border, all of that is very difficult. Mm -hmm. The entire system that we have really needs to have a makeover. And that is generally called uh, or referred to as immigration reform. We need immigration reform desperately. We've needed it for a long time. But this administration has bypassed Congress time and time again, and they have signed one executive order after another. And all of those things have created challenges in how immigration cases are being adjudicated and therefore they are significantly more difficult. Mm. So you said a lot of great things there. And I think there are a lot of things that people should be more aware of, such as something that I had read was this is the first administration that has uh, imposed um, asylum fees. So now in order to claim asylum, you actually have to pay. In the past, it was it was there was no money, obviously, because you were a refugee and you were trying to come here and claim asylum. So this is the first administration to ever impose something like that. Another thing I feel like it was not really spoken about, um, USIS, United States, uh, I think, Citizenship and Immigration Services, yeah. was about to be shut down not too long ago. They were about to furlough like 13,000 employees, a huge amount. And what people don't really know is that this is one of the agencies of the government that is not funded through taxpayer money. They are completely funded by any um, fees that they would receive from visa applications. So when the pandemic happened, there was no applications, right? There was a, a big slowdown. Um, you know, you have really touched on two very, very profound issues. Let's take them one by one. Mm -hmm. The asylum fee. Uh, you're absolutely right. We have never had an asylum fee. And you're absolutely right. People are destitute. They're desperate. They're fleeing their home countries, often in very difficult circumstances where they've already been tortured and abused. And they've suffered immensely just to get to our borders. They don't have money. Um, we have uh, an administration that is using all of their own inefficiencies to blame immigrants and saying we now need to charge fees. Now these fees have not gone into effect yet. They will go into effect on October 2nd and they're going to be charging $50 per application. Now that is a, a lot of money for somebody who has nothing, who is barely you know, staying alive. But, uh, you know, these fees have all been challenged. I hope they're going to be challenged again in court. But we have a humanitarian responsibility to make sure that we help the people that are coming to our shores. There is something called the Human Rights Convention that was actually founded. One of the founding people or founding members was Eleanor Roosevelt the first lady of America who after the Second World War put so much time and energy in creating something that the 
all the countries will adopt and America had, but now we're putting it aside. So you're absolutely right. It is outrageous. And if your listeners feel outraged, they should call their Congress people, Senator, Congresswoman, um, their representatives to explain that, look, I don't like this. This is not the way I want our country to be, you know, um, viewed. And remember, people need to remember that it's we the people. You know, we the people, we have a voice and that voice needs to be exercised. A lot of times people think, well, what was one person going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to change it? You start by just saying how you feel and you talk to your representatives. It doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's immigration, health concern, pandemic, fires, you name it. That's the way you get your voice heard. So that's the, the issue. The furlough, you're absolutely right. And I have to tell you, I've had, you know, so many uh, nights of, you know, serious concern, just turning, you know, tossing left and right, thinking, how am I going to help my clients? The furlough it was actually declared not necessarily because of the pandemic. The furlough was declared because the government said we don't have enough money. USCIS said we don't have enough money, which is why they were able to bring these fees, you know, ahead of time and how they said we need more fees for asylum. And I will direct you to a couple of my blog posts when I wrote about this. Um, there were comments that we as the public could make and that deadline was somewhere around New Year's. Um, you know, December 2019 sometime. So I read the however many pages, 300, 500 pages, I don't remember, but I was outraged about some of them for sure. But when they say, when the government says that they're justifying it, it needs, we need more time, it's because the government itself is being inefficient. Mm -hmm. We already talk about the executive orders and the difficulties that they've created. Those difficulties are really done so they could deny cases. The, the difficulties are putting in place these inefficiencies and these inefficiencies are there therefore having an effect on how how much time they need to process a case and you're again a hundred percent right USCIS is one of the agencies of the government where they are funded by the fees we pay every form that the government takes is uh, is accompanied by a government fee ranging from three hundred dollars to $4,500, you know, depending on the case. And the idea is that these fees will fund the time it takes to process this case. So they have created a problem by creating these um, adjudications and adverse policies, looking for a zillion different things that shouldn't be necessary. And they have frequently asked questions that they shouldn't be asking. They, you know, these are being legally challenged, but the government is out of control in this situation. They are audacious. They are doing these things because they can get away with it. And they are using those results to say, we we need more money. So ultimately, the uh, people that are paying the price for their inefficiencies is my clients, our friends and families, our businesses. And this is unacceptable, completely unacceptable. These policies that they have put in place need to be rolled back and they need to go back to the law. The law was, you know, already written. They have reinterpreted the way law is put into effect to create these barriers. And so you're right, that was all going to lead to a furlough. And in the pandemic, I would say that there were not a shortage of cases. If anything, there were more cases that were being filed because the types of people that normally wouldn't file cases were filing cases. Tourists that came here uh, suddenly couldn't leave the country and they had to file for extensions. The government didn't say, hey, all mercy to those who are stuck here. They didn't say that. People had to file their cases. So hundreds, I mean, I don't have numbers, but I can assume hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases were filed because people simply couldn't get on their planes. COVID-19 posed two types of problems. Number one, the world shut down. Governments, countries, they shut their borders down. So if you were here and you could somehow get on a plane, the country wasn't going to take you. Um, the second problem was planes were not running. They just simply were not flying anymore. Flights were being cancelled left and right. And they have still not started operating fully and people still cannot get on their flights. So if you are in the US and let's say today your tourist visa or whatever your visa is 
comes to an end today, even if you want to leave today, you cannot leave. So those people have to file cases and every case means money. So the government has received money. In the meantime, people who needed to operate in the normal course of affairs have filed their cases. So the pandemic has not seen a shortage of cases at all. But the government has gone back to their, uh, they're not saying inefficiencies, they're saying we need more money. And they were going to say, if we don't get more money, we are actually going to furlough 70% of their staff. Mm -hmm. 70% of their staff means that agency would effectively be shut down. Where are they going to put the rest of their 30%? Are they going to be in the mailing room, opening cases? Because if I file a case and it gets to the government, the only way I can be at peace is knowing the government received it. And the way I know they received it is they send a letter to me saying, we got your money, thank you very much. Where are they going to put their 30% of their people that need to say that? So what happened was Congress did challenge them and suddenly they said well you know we actually have money mm -hmm. and so then they said well we are going to extend this until October we're not going to furlough anybody until October but they have put this sort of very uh, they have essentially threatened to still th furlough their people unless Congress gives them money so what you said at the beginning is 100% correct the USCIS is funded by uh filing fees. They are not an agency that needs Congress's money. What needs to happen is the administration needs to roll back the anti-immigrant policies so that USCIS can go back to doing their jobs and therefore everything goes back to normal. And so it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, in October. They could still uh, furlough their people, but the fees are going up on October 2nd. At this point, there's no we, we can't help it. So I do feel very badly for anybody who's filing an asylum at this point. We don't know what's going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. Or Already, if you, if you hear the news about what's happening at the US-Mexico border, we are seeing inhumane treatment of human beings. And we are seeing that their cases are being delayed in their processing and so forth. And now they're going to say, give me $50 that you don't have. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 an interesting time in history where we are going to be judged as a people to what we are doing to those who are vulnerable coming to us for help. And so wow. there's a lot there's a lot in there. So yeah, we definitely there's no way we can't ta uh, talk about the um, the report that just came out the, the whistleblower from ICE who said that they're performing all types of surgeries, removing um, uteruses and things from from detainees. But before that, so just to clear all that up, I remember uses saying that they were going to raise their fees and $50 may not seem like a lot to, to people that are listening right now, but this is $50 for refugees. So imagine it's it's dollars as well. So the dollar typically going to be stronger than from the currency from the country they're coming. So it's a lot of money, even though $50 might not sound like a lot to an American right now. But some of the other fees, because a lot of other visa categories, they went up and some of them, they went up by like 2000%. I saw like huge numbers, like where it was maybe $100 before and now all of a sudden it's like 1100. And so and but the house passed a bill i believe or they introduced a bill when all of this was happening when uh uses was was threatening to furlough and it seemed like the house's solution was to just allow them to raise the fees even more to raise them higher but that falls on the the immigrant that price is going to eventually fall on the immigrant so it was almost like congress didn't really want to do anything about it they just kind of were like all right well we will allow you to raise your prices on certain visas. I don't know if they were more business centered, but the house bill didn't seem to be like a good solution in my uh, my opinion, because it and would I, fall on the immigrants. I think you're right about that. I didn't follow that particular bill, but uh, the way, and I think your listeners need to understand how this fee increase happened. There's something called the Code of Federal Regulation, and that essentially allows the government to uh, change their 
interpretation or um, the way they run things, the law, and not necessarily through statutes. So a statute is a bill that comes through Congress and Senate and signed by the president. Mm -hmm. What we expect is nothing to be signed by Congress or the president because when it comes to immigration, they don't do anything. They cannot agree on anything. But the way the fees were increased were through the code of federal regulation and the federal register and there's a process for it. You propose the rules, the public gets a chance to comment and then the agencies take those comments and they adjust their fees. Um, and so that's how these fees have gone through. They have increased significantly and I will send you a link from my blog where it's just the fees that are listed. I'll send you two links, one about my thoughts on what is changing. Um, at the time, a lot of news reports were coming and they were talking about the bigger issues. But as I was reading the nitty gritty, I pointed out some of the smaller things that people wouldn't necessarily pay attention to until too late. And so I, uh, I will send you that link. Mm -hmm. And so the citizenship fee, for example, is doubling. Mm -hmm. And the idea is they want to price out citizenship. And so if you have any listeners who've been sitting on the fence, about filing their citizenship application, get it filed as soon as you can. You can file it online or using the form N for November 400. There are instructions in it and you know, you can file it on your own. You don't necessarily need a lawyer if you, you are a simple case, but that fee, we need um, as many new citizens as possible. Um, and people are here. If your future is here for the long term, why not apply for citizenship? But coming back to citizenship, and you didn't ask me this, I'm just going to follow on to this issue. Mm -hmm. The government has delayed processing of citizenship cases significantly, so much so that they have not processed these cases so that there are at least a couple of hundred thousand, if not more, applicants who could have become citizens to vote in this election cycle. Yeah, that's what use, I was going to say. Yeah. That's huge. It's huge. And they use the pandemic to slow all of that down. But they had slowed it down before the pandemic. The pandemic was just an excuse to say this is why. And so they are being very strategic in how to slow walk anything when it comes to immigration. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a form of voter suppression because that many people that were waiting on it and to become a citizen, typically it's around five years that you have to wait from the point that you get your visa to the point that you can take the citizenship test. It's around five years. Five years from the date you get your green card, not mm -hmm. visa. There are various types of visas that allow you to get here, but until you get that green card, your clock doesn't begin which is residency, right? The green card that's is just right. another term for residency. So yeah, so that's five years. And another thing, there's a lot of things that I, I feel are going under the radar that the Trump administration is trying to do is there was talks about continuous vetting. So continuous um, like observations and making sure that you are complying with laws and stuff and that you're actually here, um, you know, if it's a marriage uh, visa or residency, it's that it was actually for love. So, and it would go on until you become a citizen and you can, and I think they were even talking about even after you became a citizen, there was a chance that they could denaturalize you. Is that, did you hear about any of this? So denaturalization became uh, a news item soon after Trump came into office. And there was uh, a lot of fear and I had concerns that they would uh, do more to denaturalize people. And in the past, denaturalization is really the, most sacred item in immigration. You do not do that unless somebody is truly, truly, truly bad, um, like a terrorist. And uh, when Trump came into office, he created uh, a new department for denaturalization. And that sort of came to light, I want to say, a year or so, two and a half, two years ago. Time is a blur at this point. So much has happened. And we have seen some cases, uh, I have actually seen at least two cases and people were denaturalized and sent back. Uh, and, you know, those cases, they found fraud and, you know, one could argue that, yeah, you know, they were not necessarily out of their purview for doing that. The fear is that they would piggyback on these types of scenarios to look at people who have not committed any sort of fraud. But, you know, 
uh, interpret it such that it fits into their denaturalization category. It, at this point, the pandemic sort of put that aside, I think. I haven't heard anything in, in recent history, but I worry about what could happen with that should Trump get reelected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then another thing, he, and I, I only remember this because I speak with my grandma and she watches a lot of, uh, of, news at night and she she called me one night and she said oh trump said he's going to give a pathway to citizenship for the dreamers he said he's going to do it soon and i said grandma he says a lot of things you definitely should not listen to all the things he says take it with a grain of salt and she was like no you'll see and then i waited i think this was about like a month and a half ago at this point and i waited and i was like grandma remember what you told me you see he still hasn't said anything and she was like oh no it takes time don't worry he's gonna do it and i was just like i don't know but you know then he'll put out all this rhetoric like he did a naturalization ceremony at his rnc and so he did that and he he wants to give off i think even a couple nights ago or last night he talked about yeah we're gonna do it we're working on something big you know those vague terms he uses but he said we're working on something big and we're gonna bring uh a lot of people are gonna be happy about it in in uh, regards to citizenship but you know this rhetoric how different is it from what he he puts out there to what is actually happening with his administration? Well, his bigly rhetoric is sort of really, at this point, I I wish I had a word for it. You know, whatever he says, you have to think he's doing the opposite. He said that soon after the DACA decision came out. So the Supreme Court basically said, hey, you didn't go through the rulemaking process and therefore DACA lives. And, you know, a lot of us were surprised by that ruling because we thought the Supreme Court might take it away. But soon thereafter, that's when he made that announcement that you mentioned, where we're going to, but nothing has come out. My concern is he is going to come out with something. I mean, you might remember since the pandemic, there have been one executive order after another. And now he's built on the initial travel bans where that chain migration word that we used before, he has now accomplished it because of COVID, because he has banned green cards for parents and siblings and certain work categories. He's banned certain visa um, types at this point. And he may do something more between now and the election because he's really speaking to his base. He's not really speaking to the immigrants who who are looking for a pathway. He's saying what they want to hear so people can, you know, give him some time, I think. But I don't think we're going to see anything. If we didn't see anything in the last four years and what we saw was not good, whatever we see between now and November is just going to be worse. Mm. And so I don't believe anything he says. And whatever he says, I think of what is he going to do that is the opposite, that's going to be 10 times worse. And I wait for a Friday night too, because a Friday night seems to be his favorite time to give bad news. It started with the travel ban, that fateful Friday. And since then, a lot of the um, news that has come out are generally Friday night. But I have to say, Xavier, you are so impressively informed Really, it's it's a joy to speak to somebody who is really asking very, very intelligent questions about this issue. Well, I appreciate it. Um, I've I've had immigration in my family life for since I was born. Like my so I helped my mom get her her husband uh, here. She had to go through all that and she's not that tech savvy. There are some applications that you can do online, correct? Yes, and they have gotten better. They're not a lot, and I typically haven't used them because I didn't trust the system. But I think in the pandemic, I have said to clients, you know, I think you're going to be fine. And so some of them, a handful, three or mm-hmm. three, maybe four. Mm-hmm. Are, are, so is, is that backlog that started when the pandemic and the lockdown happened, is that flowing? So let's say uh, an immigrant that filed their case in like January, February, or let's say, um, let's be specific here. So let's say um, a marriage um, application, they sent it in and then they got their, um, the spouse got a social security number and she got a, a work permit and uh, a travel visa. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be a work permit and a travel permit, correct? And now the next step would be to go through the interview. 
And so that never, let's say that happened in January, February, never got a, a contact back for the interview. It, are things moving right now or what should an immigrant do that filed before the lockdown and hasn't heard anything throughout this whole time? Well, now remember the lockdown happened around March. Um, so let's take the two, the category that you, let's talk about a marriage case, um, but let's take two timelines. Cases that were filed before 2020 and cases that are filed after, because even if you filed in January, February, not much has happened. So those cases were already backlogged. In Washington state, these cases were taking two years to get to the time for the interview. And so a lot of my clients had already been waiting for an interview pre-pandemic uh, and way pre-pandemic, I'm talking 2019. And then comes January, February and uh, cases that were filed January, I'd have to look back, but cases filed February and January too, potentially, have not actually got to the biometrics. That's called biometrics when they do the fingerprinting. Mm -hmm. But until you do the fingerprinting, you cannot get your work permit and your travel permit. And so the backlog is not just for the interview. Uh, USCIS offices actually shut down in March and they're only just about reopening and we're in September. So they just started to reopen August, but they're not taking a whole bunch of, not in their normal operating hours. And so from March to um, anybody filed in January, February, February for sure, January, I can't be sure. They likely haven't had their biometrics. And so if cases were already taking two years, you now have to add on all of this time to see when that case is going to end. So a lot of people have been stuck where they actually won't be getting their work permits for even longer than they thought. And so that processing time has increased several fold and I cannot even begin to predict how long it will take. Wow. So is there a, a number, a place to contact that, that you would give to your clients? Like, hey, like refer to them here because usually you have a case number, correct? So you could just give them that case number. Is there a place to call, a place to email? How hard is it to get in touch with them? Uh, good question. U.S. CIS.gov is the place to call and you would call them and ask them uh, beware that you have to wait on the phone for several hours mm -hmm. uh, again mm -hmm. if you go back to the furlough I mean boy I don't even know where they're going to put those 30% of people I don't know if they're going to be answering calls but what I have seen is some of those cases that were filed January, February for their fingerprinting is just happening around about now so if you have any listeners who are waiting for their fingerprinting, they should be looking at the mail and making sure they don't miss it because those dates might be coming around soon. It just started. Uh, and if anybody has any problems, one of the, our clients, for example, said, hey, can I push this back? I'm like, don't push it back. No. I don't know when I can get it for you again. <laughs> Drop everything you can. If you're, you know, whatever's going on, make sure you keep these appointments. It's mm -hmm. like gold dust at the mo moment. And I never thought I'd be saying an appointment like that is gold dust. Um, so yes, all of that has a domino effect, unfortunately. Mm. And then on the other side of things, so business visas, has it become more difficult for companies to sponsor uh, uh, visas because of maybe because of how the economy has been? And maybe I, didn't, I remember Trump wanting to put a, a, a halt on it for a little bit because these bigger companies. Um, I, well, what he said was, you know, it's because he wanted to retain American jobs and stuff. I don't know his true purpose, but how is it on the business side of things? Uh, again, you asked some really good questions. The uh, government basically is using the pandemic to cause a lot of problems for businesses. So he did. He did put a ban on H-1B visas. He put a ban on L visas and J visas. And uh, these people, these visas, people who haven't had these visas before or who are and they're outside the country, even if they are approved to get visas, they cannot get them. So businesses who have been waiting for employees to come in have to say, I don't know when you can come in. And I want to touch on the J visa in just a moment. People who are in the US can still extend their visas. But the difficulty here is that the government is really scrutinizing those cases at such a uh, level that they are denying cases at a very high level. Now, two things to think about. Number one, 
they are using the we want to hire American workers as a way to question cases. So recently in one of my cases, I saw language uh, that basically said, prove that you're not displacing an American worker. And that language was not in this case and it's not a requirement to show that. Mm-hmm. But we have seen, we have heard of denials using this very language, saying, well, your employee is going to be doing this and therefore you're displacing a, an American worker, therefore denied. And they'll reject <laughs> you for that? They have rejected people using that language. It's very recent as of the last several weeks that this language has been used. But I want to talk about J visas for a minute. The J visa is a visa that is used for trainees who are coming here to train uh, in things that they cannot learn at their home country. But au pairs so, use Au pairs, visa. I was going to say, is the main J-1 visa that I know of. Yes. And it is uh, the au pair visa is so incredibly crucial to our economy that I don't know if it was necessarily understood how important until this pandemic. Um, we are going through an unprecedented time in our society. We are working from home. We are having our schooling at home. Uh, professionals are now pa- not only parents, but their teachers. They're also cleaners and everything else in their household. But the teaching component is a really difficult one. I, as a lawyer, found it very difficult to run my practice, help my clients deal with the COVID explosion of problems while trying to be a teacher to my child. And if you have an au pair at your home, you have childcare that allows you to be the working professional. What we have done is we've said no childcare to your children. We are now saying no schooling for children. We're saying you have to work from home. And if you don't have a job, oh boy, you know, sorry for you. Maybe you'll get a stimulus check, maybe you won't. Everything that you normally would have in your day-to-day life to help you be a human being, to do what you need to do is being taken away from you. And that J visa is a component of it because J visa au pairs will normally come to the US around September just as school begins and that's been shut down. So this administration is not helping the economy come back to life. They're putting restrictions in places that we never thought we'd see. And we took it for granted that these things would be here. And they're not necessarily doing the things that a leader would do, the leadership would do to help the people. So banning visa categories is really not because of the pandemic and saving jobs. It's really to go, the underlying reason is the anti-immigrant policies that they have. It's just that the pandemic has given them a nice vehicle to accomplish the things that they have always wanted to do from the very moment they got into office. Mm. Mm. And so let's get into, um, you are the founder of the nonprofit Widen, which you train and mentor lawyers to help detain immigrants. How, what is the training like? Like, what do you have to train somebody in when they maybe, is it people, lawyer, any lawyer that doesn't work with immigration can do it. You then give them that training. How different is it to go from another type of law to helping immigrants? Again, that's a really good question. And before I tell you that, I want to tell you that I have a book coming out. Ah, yes. Uh, And the book is called Legal Heroes in the Trump Era. And this is a compilation of stories from lawyers that I've seen up close and personally who have done extraordinary things to help immigrants. And it includes the stories uh, of my work, uh, including how this nonprofit came to be. And I would love for people to get the book on September 29th. Hopefully that's going to be the date, but I'll make sure, Xavier, you know about it. Um, Because this will tell you what people have done to help the humanitarian side of things. So coming to your question about the nonprofit, my day job is being a business immigration lawyer. I help businesses and employees and so forth. Um, I don't go to court. I did for a while. And then I found that with my children, as they came along, I had two of them, they're now eight and 10. It was difficult for me to juggle going into court and putting a lot of time and travel and just doing all of that with the other things I had. And so I don't have the expertise in the courtroom trial anymore for immigration. But what I found is Trump's policies were really increasing law enforcement and detaining people. 
And what I realized is that as I was backtracking just one for one thing, as Trump came into office, I started a committee called the Response Committee with my local immigration lawyers. And it allowed me to get immigration lawyers where they were needed. Know your rights, because people were afraid of, is somebody going to break down my door? Uh, is ICE going to do that? How are they going to pick me up? What are my rights? Um, people at the airports needed help. And that's how Airport Lawyer came about. But all of that experience made me think, oh my gosh, what am I going to do when I need 50 lawyers for immigration court? Immigration lawyers cannot uh, take time for pro bono work day in, day out, particularly for immigration court. It's so complicated. And those cases take a long time. And so while people were being, you know, immigration lawyers were sort of like, I can't give more time anymore. I have to help my clients. I have to make sure my rent is paid too. I could see that non-immigration lawyers were like, I really want to help. I can't believe moms are being separated from their children. How can I help? And so I realized lawyers are lawyers. They have the skills of lawyering, but they don't know immigration law. So the nonprofit, and I have um, some amazing co-founders too, who helped me get this off the ground. And my law firm team, bless their hearts, they helped me with a lot of the work. Um, we train non-immigration lawyers in immigration law, and they um, essentially provide pro bono assistance. Uh, and then we team them with an immigration lawyer who gets a stipend, and then we give them a case, and then the client gets pro bono assistance in their trial. Uh, we are a relatively new organization. It is a brand new model that is formalized now. And uh, my hope is that we can expand this uh, in due course. COVID-19 has brought us to a halt because nobody wants, we're not getting cases at the moment. And, uh, um, you know, even if I had cases, I don't know if I could in good conscience get lawyers to go outside of their homes. But um, that's a nonprofit. And it took a lot of it took about 18 months to come up with the quote unquote formula of how to do this and then have all the pieces together. So I'm very proud of what I and my colleagues have done. But we've trained about 150 lawyers, non-immigration lawyers in immigration law. So if there were a crisis tomorrow, uh, we would be able to pull from those people to see how we uh, address and respond to any crisis. And just before DACA, you know, the Supreme Court decision we did uh train a lot more people because we just didn't know what the supreme court was going to do so we were in position at least i'm very proud to say that in seattle and washington state uh there were a lot of measures put in place in case the supreme court took it away wow that's amazing work that's really really important and that's things that it seems small, but just allowing an immigrant to have a good lawyer that cares about them, that wants to do right by them, and that the immigrant doesn't have to worry about the financial side of it is amazing. That's really important work. And since the beginning of this administration, have you seen, do you think that the feeling among immigrants uh, has been to seek out more legal help or to seek less legal help because they don't, you know, they might feel hesitant to come out in the open about their their legal status. And do you think that it's actually suppressed um, immigrants from from seeking help or it's or it's boosted it? You know, it could be looked upon in two ways. But before I answer your question, what I will say that it has decreased and put fear in people is people who are victims of crimes, people who need to report uh, issues are not reporting to the police because they are afraid of what will happen to them. And that is a significant uh, issue in our communities because those who need to be put away, people who are abusers, people who are violent are getting away with it because immigrants are afraid of reporting in whichever context it might be. But in terms of getting assistance, um, at least in our area, Washington State, and that's all I can speak of, we are very fortunate to have some good organizations here that have rallied together and been able to provide assistance to immigrants. I don't know about other states, um, but people are not necessarily applying for renewals of DACA or you know, at the moment, first time applications aren't allowed anyway, but there is definitely a fear 
But our community, I'm very, very proud to say, has stepped up in every single way. And I just want to put a plug in for the city of Seattle and the American Immigration Lawyers Association in Washington State, as well as the King County Bar Association. These three organizations have put in place some very unique clinics for immigrants that are ongoing. Uh, where uh, immigrants can get free advice. So if any of your listeners are in Washington State, go to the City of Seattle website to find out about these free legal things. Wow, that's amazing. And yeah, because I, I feel like in 2016, when we all saw who was going to win, who was going to be the next president, a lot of immigrants must have felt terrified and not even just immigrants, you know, Muslims as well because of the travel ban, which is something that you also co-founded. It was a airport lawyer to work and give help during that that travel ban crisis. Can you speak about that? And what was that like when um, I it's that was 2017, right? So my memory's a little bit foggy. Did All of our memories court, are foggy, right? <laughs> it feels like 10 years have passed since then. It's only three years ago. Yeah. But what was the ultimate court ruling for that? What happened with the travel ban? And is there anything still ongoing today? Again, you asked some really good questions. Um, where do I even begin? So the travel ban happened again. I'm going to put a plug in for my book for this again. And I would, Xavier, I want you to read my book. You oh, personally oh, must read my that. book and you must have me back on your show. Um, the book basically talks about some of these things that I've done and why and how they happen. Um, the airport lawyer happened because the travel ban came out of nowhere. While, you know, on the campaign rhetoric, the uh, Trump basically said, we're going to have a Muslim ban. We're going to we're going to not have Mexicans anymore because they're rapists and drug you know, sellers. Uh, he had all of these things that he said. But when he got into office, a lot of people like, oh, he won't be so bad. He won't do these things. But boy, he gets into office on Saturday. Wednesday, he has two executive orders signed. Four of them were unsigned. On Friday, he signs the travel ban, Friday, 5 p.m. People who are in the airplanes, in the air were banned without knowing. People who are getting on the airplanes from different countries were not allowed. And people who just arrived were banned and sent back to their countries. The chaos was unprecedented. What this administration can say that they are best at is creating chaos out of nothing, whether it's a travel ban or anything else. The Supreme Court basically coming back to just the travel ban itself, initially said, and our Washington State Attorney General filed the first one. I am so proud to be a Washingtonian because our state is just doing so much in so many different ways. But our Washington State Attorney General filed the first lawsuit and he won that case because the federal judge said, this is illegal those cases and the number of them came about eventually and they eventually led to the supreme court that's where they went but by then the travel ban was edited and edited and edited and by the time it got to the supreme court the supreme court said well looking at the four corners of this paper it's legal so eventually that travel ban actually stuck but in a different form so people from these seven countries are still banned they cannot come. And so the airport lawyer, when we when we saw this crisis and I was already in position to be able to address you know, crisis situations with my committee, um, some people came to me saying, hey, you know, we want to help. And by then I had told people, hey, if you need help, you know where I am. And that was a moment of careful what you wish for because my phone, my email blew up and I didn't know how to do intake. And so when these people came to me and said, we want to help, that's how we got together and we all co-founded Airport Lawyer. And the idea was that people would be able to go to our website and say, you know, this is who I am. This is my information. I'm going to such and such airport. I need help. And we were able to get immigration lawyers and lawyers in general to those passengers, to those airports. And that continuously was uh, necessary for a good six months until that Supreme Court decision came along when it sort of died down some, but it continues. And what has happened in the pandemic, particularly as we just spoke, this administration has gotten bold in using the travel ban method. And so now they put those travel bans for this visa, that visa, these categories. And so that's where we stand. The travel ban continues to this day. And 
we'll have to see what happens. I think if this administration remains in power, we'll probably see more of this. Mm. And what do you think the um, environment and atmosphere and everything, if Joe Biden wins and he becomes president, what do immigration lawyers look forward to? Like, what do you think an uh, immigration policy would be under him? I haven't looked too much at his actual um, website and all the things that he's listing, but from the point of view of immigration lawyers, what what are you expecting? Let's say he does win. You know, if we are lucky enough to have a President Biden who actually gets into office, I think we will see uh, immigration reform on the table. And he has promised to do that. But Hillary Clinton had promised to do that too. What I now anticipate is it may not be as easy to roll back some of these things that Trump has put in place. Um, because we have seen immigration officers, we've seen ICE officers, we've seen CBP officers. They are so emboldened at this point. It's going to be difficult to roll back that sort of attitude but the policies that have been placed now need to go through new policy making processes to then go into effect so the rollback is definitely not going to be easy but they will try to roll them back um we will see immigration reform on the table and what i will say to all your listeners and i know you've said this yourself in your other podcasts people have to vote because it's not just about the presidential election. It's about the Senate, the House. We need people who believe human beings matter. You know, we the people matter, not self-interest and lobbyists and all of those. We need people that care about the people in office. So voting matters. Even if the president is in office and he wants to get immigration reform passed, we may have the Republicans still blocking it. Mm -hmm. So what I expect to see is there will be immediate uh, attempts to try to roll back as much as possible legally, and then they'll go through the steps and immigration reform is 100% on their you know, table to be number one priority. And so I will see that, that, they, that there will be progress in it. But what I want people to know is your vote matters. Because mm -hmm. every person in this food chain of, you know, policy making needs to be in place so that the bigger picture can be accomplished. Yes, yes. And people need to stay politically active all the time, not just every four years, not just every two years. Uh, you know, look up district attorney races in your area. Those those small roles, sometimes they play a big part. We don't often have as much uh advertising and marketing to to say hey you know there's a, a race going on right now in your district or for for like town councilman or whatever or councilwoman but you know those are important as well so definitely i always tell people stay active if we do get a president biden do not go to autopilot definitely stay active and i want to be fair here i definitely want to be fair i was reading there's a washington post report that said actually uh, deportations under Obama were actually higher in the first three years than they were for Trump. I believe it was 1.18 million people in the first three years of Obama, and under Trump it was only 800,000. But after this conversation that we've been having, it seems like he's found other ways to to get to his to accomplish his goal without necessarily de deporting the traditional way and targeting the way that it had been done in the past it seems like he's found more discreet ways to go about it but i do want to be fair because you know that is a criticism that i've read before that obama did increase deportations so when i see and plan for hopeful president biden I hope that's something that he takes into account as well, that people are upset about that little tidbit in Obama's legacy, that he was deporting that much. Some can argue, you know, he naturalized more people through DACA and other things, but that is a concern as well. And I want to be fair about that. And I think you're right about that. It, it's true. He did. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I'm so glad I'm not a politician because you have to make a lot of very difficult decisions, but he did a lot of good. Um, but it's true, he did. He was dubbed the deporter in chief. But you're absolutely right in your analysis. What Trump has done, he has accomplished his goals through policymaking. He's keeping people out. He's found ways to get them out of the country by denying the cases. And the way he has done it is, is we call it the invisible wall. 
-hmm. You know, he wanted the border wall and lots of money for it. And everybody thought that was what's going to happen. But no, though that money has actually funded the Department of Homeland Security so that they can now be unmarked officers and protests. You know, that's what they're being used for. But the invisible wall, exactly what you said, has accomplished the actual goal of reducing immigration. And we haven't even spoken about public charge. I mean, I know we're running out of time. I could speak to you all day, but public charge really is something that is going to see a lot of, um, you know, uh, reduction in immigrations all by itself. Well, what is that? What is that? That sounds like it's too important to, to just gloss over. <laughs> You're right. Well, public charge is a way to say, hey, you immigrants, you come here and you take our money. You take our social security. We want to see that you are going to be self-sufficient for the time that you are in the U.S. And um, he did this through a rulemaking process. It was litigated uh, fiercely. It's still in litigation, but he he sort of uh, leaped over to the Supreme Court because obviously he put two Supreme Court judges there and said, hey, you have to let me do this. And they said, okay, we're going to let you do this now while other people are deciding the case. So public charge went to in into effect just before the pandemic on February 24th, 2020. And that basically means the applications, and you asked me how difficult applications are and how they've changed, this has single-handedly made it extremely difficult to file cases. There is a form that has to show your education, your health, your age, your skills, to show that any time in your lifetime, you're not going to seek public assistance, mm. even if you become a citizen. So that is the summary of public charge, but it applies to everybody, not just those who are applying for green cards, even though that's the primary way it's going to be looked at, but people getting green cards from abroad, people applying for visas of all different types have to answer these questions. So the invisible wall, brick by brick by brick, has been so high that he has absolutely accomplished everything that he wanted to. Uh, uh, more than he thought he could possibly uh, through this and therefore he's much, much worse. I mean, there's no comparison to him and, and President Obama. Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's a financial wall. It's an invisible wall. It's there's so many different ways that they're trying to deter and uh, make it so that immigrants don't even want to try, that they can't even afford it, that they don't want to go through it. And um, it's it's really a shame that a lot of it doesn't get covered as much the legal immigration side of things like i feel like the media it's easier for them to cover caravans and illegal immigration so that they could throw around like all these buzzwords like invasion and you know it's just it's it's uh flashier for them i guess so it's just nobody really wants to cover like legal immigration because it's a lot of paperwork it's a lot of patience it's just a lot of waiting a lot of uh you know getting things checked off and making sure that you send the right things so I, it is a shame that the media doesn't always cover legal immigration as much as they do illegal immigration. And like in 2018, I remember the caravan was a huge story right around the time of midterm elections. It was a gigantic story that you couldn't turn on the TV and not hear about it. Elections are over. No longer talking about caravan. Done. And expect that to happen again. Something will happen again. But I, I, you're, you're so right that they don't report everything because not everything is sexy and not everything is sort of buzzwordy. But I would just give you one example of a small change. When you apply for a husband and a wife, one of them is a primary visa holder and the other is not, but the other is a dependent. And let's take an H-1B as an example, but it applies to all of these types of cases. The principal application can be filed pretty quickly. Like you pay them extra money and they'll adjudicate it very quickly. And traditionally they have adjudicated the spouse case just as quickly. But the government put in a new policy where the spouse will now need to do biometrics. The biometrics that we just spoke about. It wasn't a requirement before. But once they put in that biometrics requirement, the spouse, the principal is getting their visa, the spouse is sitting around, mm -hmm. not able to do what they need to do. And so that is, a, it might seem like a small thing, but now this person cannot travel, now this person cannot work. The practical impact on their lives is huge. And, you know, it doesn't get understood in the bigger way. It's like, oh, you know, that's a smaller issue. But that small thing, every small item that they've changed have had big impacts wow 
Tamina, we this has been an amazing conversation. We're at a little bit over an hour, so I don't want to take up more of your time. I could talk to you about immigration all day. I could tell the passion you have for it, and it's it's really great to have you. Can you tell the listeners where they can connect with you? In my show notes, I'll make sure I'll put the blogs, and I'll make sure I'll put the links to everything else, but make sure uh, if anything else that you want to say. Well, thank you so much. Well, first of all, I this is one of the most enjoyable podcast interviews I've ever done. So thank you for having me. Um, and people can connect to, to me through my website, www.watsonimmigrationlaw.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I do blog a lot, but I also have my own podcast. It's called Tamina Talks Immigration. It's because I can talk a lot. <laughs> and I could talk to you all night as well. Um, Tamina Talks Immigration is where my book has derived from. I did a series of interviews with people, and I would love for people to uh, get the book Legal Heroes in the Trump Era. It will be out uh, by the end of the month, and I'll make sure that you have it. Um, and, you know, I really do love talking immigration because I just know a lot. I'm good at it. And it's something that I truly feel like can make a difference in. So thank you for having me on your show. Amazing. And if you if, if I get the book, I will definitely read it. And I would definitely love to talk to you about it after. I didn't even get to ask you what would real immigration reform even look like? Because I'm sure that we could go down another rabbit hole of, oh of another hour long conversation. Thank you so much, Tamina. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much as well. And I look forward to coming back. Thank you to everyone who supports the show and has shared the show with a friend or a loved one. A special thank you to our guest, Tamina Watson, for coming on the show. If you haven't already, make sure you check out the show notes to read more of Tamina's work and to connect with her. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at A Pretty Normal and message me if you'd like to come on the show or if there's any topic at all that you want me to cover. My name is Xavier Diaz and this was A Pretty Normal Podcast.